We're in Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, but just to remind ourselves of the context, this, again, this fairly large section in the middle of Luke is almost entirely unique to Luke's gospel, including our story today. Jesus has been talking to the tax collectors and sinners at the beginning of Luke 15. The Pharisees, it says, verse 2, begin to grumble that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. He tells the parables of the, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son. And then in chapter 16, he gives a parable about the unrighteous steward and about how you manage your money, what you what you use your um, your money for. Are you, as it says, as Jesus says in verse 9 of chapter 16, are you making friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings? Now the Pharisees are listening. Jesus alternates his audience as he speaks. Verse 14 of chapter 16 says the Pharisees were, who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And Jesus replies. So the Pharisees love money. They think that it makes sense that you could serve God and mammon. But Jesus says, no, that's not the case. And, and so Jesus says that he knows their hearts. You guys look justified before men. In chapter, verse 15, you look like you're righteous, but God knows your heart that you are not righteous. In fact, you are lovers of money. Now, we get to our passage, our story in Luke 16, verse 19. Jesus goes on further to talk about riches. Luke 16, 19 says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at the gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. This is a very sobering passage, of course. It shows the distraction and deceitfulness of wealth and the eternal pain and regret of missing the opportunity to get right with God. Before we look at the passage in detail, let's ask a question. And it's one that commentators often ask and disagree about. Is is this actually a parable? It doesn't say parable. And sometimes it says Jesus spoke a parable. Other times it doesn't like this one. Uh, Some, for example, John Calvin, say that because Lazarus is named 
And by the way, he's the only named person besides Abraham in any parable. The other parables are, have anonymous people, like the prodigal son, the father, son, the elder son are not named. So because there's a, a name attached to this man, it must refer to an actual person named Lazarus. But it's possible that Lazarus, in fact, was not named because he was an actual person, but because it's showing the rich man knew who he was. We'll see later on. The rich man looks up and sees Lazarus with Abraham. And so it shows that not only did this rich man know about this poor man who was lying at his gate, he'd seen him day after day and ignored him, but he also knows his name. He knows enough about this man to know that he is named Lazarus. So we see that he is... Um, unconcerned, unhelpful to this man whose name he even knows who lies at his gate. And now that later on this man is desperate himself for some mercy, he'll ask for the smallest of kindnesses from Lazarus, this one whom he knows by name, not just some anonymous beggar at his gate. So I think we lean towards the fact that it is a parable, and we'll look a little bit more about why uh, in a few minutes. Verse 19 shows us first the temporal blessing of the rich man. The temporal blessing of the rich man. His blessing on this earth. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Now this being dressed in purple is associated with royalty and the very wealthy. A purple dye in this time. You can go to any Walmart and buy a purple shirt for $5 Colors don't really matter so much anymore. But in this day, this purple dye was only came from a rare shellfish. And as I understand it, you get whatever this shellfish is. You get one of them, and from this, you can get one drop of dye. So you think that we often waste stuff nowadays. Uh, it happened back then, too. You have to get so many of these shellfish and get one drop of dye out of each one before you have enough to dye a piece of cloth, purple. So you can imagine how expensive it was. And it was a sign that you were very wealthy. Now we do have a, a purple item in Mark 15. Recall when Jesus is being tormented by the soldiers, it says they took him away into the palace that is the praetorium and they put, called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him and began to acclaim him hail king of the Jews. So by putting him in a purple robe, and putting a crown on his head, they made him look like a king. That's the kind of thing that a king would wear, a, a purple outfit, purple outer garment. We also see in Revelation 17.4, we have the great harlot. And it says, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. So we have this very wealthy woman in purple and scarlet with gold and precious stones and pearls. And then one more connection with purple in Acts 16. This is a more positive one. In Philippi, we meet a woman named Lydia. And she's from the city of Thyatira. Now, Thyatira is in Asia Minor, what we call today Turkey. But she's in Philippi now, some ways away. And she's a merchant. She sells uh, purple fabrics. She's a worshiper of God. So she was uh, a proselyte, perhaps, to Judaism. And she was listening to Paul. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So Lydia, this merchant of purple fabrics, was in Philippi and likely very wealthy woman. You, you wouldn't be a, a 
a poor person if you were actually selling this purple fabric because it was so rare and expensive. So that's what this man is wearing, a purple clothes. And also it says here, fine linen. And this may well be an Egyptian cloth made from flax. And some commentators note that this linen is worth twice, twice its weight in gold. It took a lot of effort to make the linen from the flax, and then they would take the flax and they would whiten it with this fuller soap, and to get it really white took a long time again. A very expensive process just to make this fine linen, but uh, for those who are wealthy, they would love to wear it and, and show off their wealth. Like today, people might wear fancy shoes or, or fancy watches, fancy suits. Uh, these would wear fancy linen clothes, sort of more uh, underclothes, and then the, the purple on top of it. We see this fine linen worn by the bride of the lamb in Revelation 19.8. It was given to her, that is the bride of the lamb, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So this linen was so white and pure and costly, valuable, that it's likened to the righteous acts of the saints. And even the bride of Christ is wearing this fine linen. So this rich man had the best clothes, the most expensive clothes, the best food. It says he's joyously living in splendor every day. The idea he has these, these feasts day after day after day. He's enjoying life and all the blessings of his earthly wealth. He wasn't one of these miserable miser types. That He loved his wealth. He loved showing it off. He loved enjoying it. He was habitually living in splendor every day, it says here, joyously. If there had been uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Who knows that? Remembers that show a long, long time ago, one of the early reality shows. You see all these people who have so much money they don't know what to do with it all, and they'll they'll let you for half an hour, or whatever it was, see how much wealth they have and how they 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 show it off. And this man was like that. If he was in, in today's world, he would be probably have his own reality show about how wealthy he was. He'd be famous for being wealthy. So that's the temporal blessing of this rich man. He has all the things that any human being could want from a material perspective. And we move next to the temporal suffering of Lazarus. Verse 20 says, And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now, Lazarus, I mentioned before, is the only na- uh, named par- uh, character in a parable, except, of course, Abraham later on. And the rich man is sometimes called Dives, D-I-V-E-S, which means rich man in Latin. So he's not named, but over the years people say, well, we have a name for Lazarus. Why don't we, why don't we just give, give a name to this rich guy? Why don't we just call him rich guy? But we'll do it in Latin so it makes, uh, it sounds, sounds more impressive, I suppose. So Dives, if you read about Dives, that's the rich man here in this parable. Lazarus, to look at him, was a common name and comes from the Hebrew name Eleazar. Remember who Eleazar was, the famous one in the Old Testament? He, yeah, he was the, right, the son of Aaron, the first one who became high priest after Aaron died. And others in the Old Testament are named Eleazar. And the name means God has helped. And some commentators think that this name given to Lazarus is an indication that this man's trust was in God. He had absolutely nothing, but he trusted in God, and that may be why he is named Lazarus. God has helped me. And this man, Lazarus, was laid at the gate of the rich man. 
And apparently he's so weak, he couldn't walk there himself. He has to be carried and laid there. And maybe he has some friends lay him there. So we would, he would have an opportunity for charity. Remember how the man was dropped to the ceiling to have Jesus heal him? You'd want to put poor people, these, these sort of beggars, in obvious places so people can walk by and see them and give them charity. You want them to be prominent so that they can be seen and, and helped. And where better to be than at the gate of a very rich man, the richest man in town. He's right there. Even if he throws you a shekel or two, you're going to be better off than you were before. And he probably has rich friends who want to visit him too. And anytime somebody walks by, maybe they'll give you some money. He was in a place where the rich man couldn't help but notice him. In fact, we know, again, that the rich man knows his name. He knows enough that this man sitting at my gate was named Lazarus, this miserable creature. So we can picture Lazarus lying at this man's gate, and he says he's longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. This is similar to the prodigal son, isn't it? It's in fact the same word, Luke fifteen sixteen. The prodigal son, when he's away and he's there's a famine, it says he's longing uh, to to eat. In fact, it says he gladly filled his stomach with the pods the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. So just as a prodigal son longed for the, the pig food, this man, Lazarus, longs for the crumbs or the, the bits of bread that would fall off this man's table, the rich man's table. And the comment, I think, that he longed to be fed with these crumbs that fell from the table implies he didn't get them. It also shows the rich man didn't offer him anything better. You think that the rich man would have had... Uh, we guys have all thrown parties. We had a, a reception yesterday. There was lots of food left over, right? You suppose that the rich man could at least take his leftover bread that nobody wanted or, or maybe a half uh, roll that some kid left on the table, didn't want to finish, like we all have at our homes when we have people over. Can't you just give him that? But no, this man got nothing from the rich man. And Jesus adds another detail at the end of verse 21, dogs were coming and licking his sores. This is a fairly disgusting detail. Dogs were regarded as unclean and were generally scavengers in this time. We don't picture those sorts of dogs in our day. Uh, I heard some time ago about something called a puppy party. You can rent a bunch of puppies and have them to your house and you can be surrounded by doggy goodness for a couple of hours. And You've probably seen videos of kids just being attacked by, in a good sense, by a bunch of dogs and just having the time of their lives. This is not that. This is not a bunch of cute little puppies who are clean, sweet, well-groomed dogs with all their shots. These are scavenger dogs. These are half-wild dogs who are licking his sores. And some commentators think that this was the final indignity. Beyond all the, the starvation and the sores and the perhaps lameness he has dogs looking at him. He has no energy to even shoo the dogs away. Other commentators, though, say something different, that Jesus is showing that the only mercy Lazarus enjoyed was from scavenging beasts because their licks may have alleviated the pain from his sores. One commentator says, this is a touching act of brute pity in the absence of human relief. Now, I've never been in this position, so I can't say whether... I would rather have dogs licking my sores or not, whether it's good or bad. I don't normally approve of choose-your-own-interpretation kinds of Bible studies, 
But in this case, I'll let you decide whether it was a good or a bad thing for Lazarus to have dogs licking his sores. Uh, for me, uh, this, even the sound of dogs licking things drives me insane. So I'm going to be on the, the misery side. That would make me miserable to have dogs licking my sores. But back to the setting here of this parable. Lazarus, again, at this rich man's gate, so he knew of Lazarus's situation. Now, the rich man did nothing to soothe his wounds, nothing to feed his stomach, and didn't even lift a finger to make Lazarus's life less miserable. And now the parable shifts in verse 22. And we see here what commentators call a great reversal. We've seen that the temporal blessing of the rich man, the temporal suffering of Lazarus, now it's the eternal blessing of Lazarus and the eternal suffering of the rich man. Verse 22 says, Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And so the sufferings of Lazarus we've just seen ended with his death. And note, it doesn't say that he was buried. He might have been thrown into a pauper's grave. He didn't have money, perhaps not friends, to do anything with his body. They would just come by and collect him and throw him into a a grave that they were assigned to various uh, poor people who had no means to to be buried themselves. But it says he was carried away by the angels. Now, we don't know much about angels and their relationship to departing souls of the righteous, we do know a few things. Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So angels, one of their jobs, besides praising God, is to serve God's people. And so it may be possible that angels provide this last final service. They've watched over Lazarus for his life, and now they will take him to paradise at his death. And what a great honor this is. Lazarus had no great funeral procession of the rich and famous to carry him to his grave, but he had holy, mighty angels of God to carry him to paradise. We also see angels gathering the elect when Christ comes back. Matthew 24, 31 says that Christ will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together the elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So there's one instance where angels gather the elect at Christ's return. So it may well be, although we don't have explicit teaching about this, that the angels will help carry us to our eternal resting place. Now, we see Abraham's bosom mentioned here. This is kind of an unusual thing for us. But this is a place of blessing and great honor, like being at a feast. Remember Matthew 8.11, Jesus said, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven. You might also recall G- John reclining on Jesus' breast in the Gospel of John. It says there was reclining at, at the Last Supper, one on Jesus' uh, bosom, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so when you're lying at a, at around a table, you, you don't, they don't sit at tables like we do today. Uh, you would sort of recline at a table, and so your head would be by somebody else's chest. And somebody who was a close friend of yours, you might want them to, to sit or to be right next to you as you eat your meal. It was a place of great honor. Though Lazarus was not allowed inside the home of this rich man to eat table scraps, but here he is now inside Abraham's great banquet hall feasting at his side. So how's that for a great reversal? This man is not worthy to go into a rich man's home, but he is worthy to feast with Abraham right at his side at the place of honor. 
Well, continuing this great reversal, we have the eternal blessing of Lazarus, now the eternal suffering of the rich man. The middle of verse 22 to verse 23 says, The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And I expect this man got the surprise of his life, or actually not of his life, but of his existence. His, his first experience after his death was realizing where he was in Hades. Mark ten let let's Let's look there real quick. We just understand the, the idea of the rich and, and their eternal destiny. Mark chapter 10, verse 23, we have the earlier the rich young ruler who came by and was speaking to Jesus, and he, he wanted to inherit eternal life, but he didn't want to give up his stuff. In verse 23, Jesus says, looking around, he said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now you might think, after all Jesus says about the rich, the disciples might have said, nodded, yeah, yeah, you're right, Jesus, that, that's true. But it says, they were amazed at his words, verse 24. And Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? So in the disciples' view of things, again, it's, it seems strange after all the time he spent with Jesus, but to them, if anybody's saved, that's got to be the rich man. If there's, if it's hard or impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, what, what possibility is there for us poor fishermen? How are we going to get to heaven if a rich man can't? And Jesus says, verse 27, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So, the reason they think this way is apparently there's a common belief, and we see this in the Old Testament, uh, that material blessings are from God, right? God gives material wealth. It says that God gives us the power to make wealth. And so if we take a, a kind of logic, but not really a biblical logic to its extreme, if these good material gifts are a blessing from God and the rich have lots of these blessings, then they have, logically, a greater Blessing from God. And if they are that blessed by God in their material wealth, that must really show God has great regard for them. So therefore, the most wealthy are the most respected or, or loved by God, the ones who are most likely to go to heaven. So you look at somebody like Lazarus, who has nothing. You think, well, God must not love him must not want him in heaven because he is so destitute. But the rich man, now, there's a guy who in heaven because he's, he's got all these blessings. God must obviously have his favor upon this man. But, as we know, we'll, and we'll see later, and we'll see in another, and we'll see in a psalm later, we'll, we know that that's not the way God looks at things. This man, this rich man, it says here, verse 23, he's in Hades. He's in Hades. It's equivalent to the, the term Sheol in the Hebrew. We've seen that a lot in our studies of the Psalms. It's used of the place of the dead, or sometimes just of the unrighteous dead. So the word Sheol is kind of hard to, to, to pin down all the time. Uh, often it's just where everybody goes when they die, to Sheol, whether you're righteous or unrighteous. But in the New Testament, it's Hades is used of the place where the unrighteous dead go after death. 
And in this case, it's just a place of torment. We see that he's in Hades and he is in torment, it says. And I noted before that the sufferings of Lazarus ended with his death, but the sufferings of the rich man began with his death. He was in torment. But we do see he has a bit of hope. He sees Abraham far away and recognizes Lazarus. He sees Lazarus at Abraham's uh, bosom. We might say at his right hand or by his side. Surely Abraham will be able to help. And so we have a plea for mercy. Verse 24 of Luke 16. This rich man cries out and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. He speaks to Father Abraham. This is a Jewish man. And he's speaking to his great, 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 great grandfather. And who better to show him mercy? If you wanted some help, you're naturally going to go to your father or your grandfather. They're going to want to help you. So let me speak to Abraham. He can help me. And he's not asking for much. He's not asking to be carried across to where Abraham is, to that banquet. He doesn't even ask for a cup of water. He just wants a few drops from the tip of a finger, just a little bit to cool off my tongue. And much like Lazarus earlier didn't long for a feast. He didn't want a whole loaf of bread. He just wanted a crumb. This man doesn't want a whole cup of water. He just wants a, a few drops. And again, it says he's in agony. He was in torment. Now he's in agony in this flame, in the flames of Hades. And back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Jesus warns of this, and I've said this before, you probably read it also. Who says the most about hell in, in the scriptures? By far, Jesus himself does. And so if you hear somebody saying, well, Jesus is just a nice guy, um, he wouldn't ever condemn anybody, he would never judge anybody, recall that he speaks more of hell than anyone else. Mark chapter 9, verse 43 if, and by the way, there's a couple of verses, 44 and 46, are probably not in the original, so I'll skip those. But verse 43 says, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire. That word hell is Gehenna, by the way. So there's two words. There's Sheol, or Hades, rather, in Greek, and Gehenna is, is the, the place of unquenchable fire. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having two feet to be cast into hell. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. By the way, this man has two eyes in a sense in hell. It says he lifted up his eyes. Having two eyes to be cast into hell, verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So we have this agony in the flames of Hades, Gehenna, and the worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. The fire never goes away. There is no uh, dripping of water. There's no fountain. There's no river. There's no fire hose that can put out these flames. They will last forever. And Jesus himself says at the end of Matthew 25, 41, talking about the, the sheep and the goat's judgment, he says, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. This is an eternal fire. The worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. That's what this man is seeking uh, to be relieved of, even if just for a moment. 
But his plea for mercy falls on a, not necessarily deaf ears, but uh, denying lips. We have a denial of mercy from Abraham. Verse 25 says, Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Abraham saying, You are reaping what you have sown, and the time for mercy is past. Jesus said earlier in Luke, Luke 6.24, Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. You had your comfort in that life without regard for the comfort in the next life. You wanted comfort now? You got it. You should have been thinking about the comfort you wanted in the future. There's an important word here Abraham uses. He says, remember. And I think that's one of the great torments of hell, that word remember. This man had many opportunities to repent. Assuming he's a Jewish man, he probably went to synagogue week after week and heard God's law, but it didn't sink into him. And so he will now spend forever remembering all those opportunities he had to respond to the word of God and to repent and avoid this place of agony, this place of eternal agony. And we see, as a contrast, as poor and miserable as Lazarus was on the earth, he had a hope for eternal comfort and is now receiving it. It says he is being comforted here in the presence of Abraham at this great feast. And Abraham continues, another reason why he can't grant this this rich man's request. Besides all this, I should say the formerly rich man, right? Because in Hades, he has nothing except pain and regrets. Verse 26 says, Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. So even if Lazarus had some water he could carry to you, he can't make it. There's a great gulf between us. There's a chasm. There's no bridge from from us to you. And remember that you would not help Lazarus in life, and he cannot help you in death. You have chosen your sides. You chose your your wealth, your splendor on the material side. He chose his heavenly riches, and those choices are permanent. I can't help but think of Luke sixteen nine earlier in this this very chapter where Jesus says, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon or wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. And I talked about how when you help people on this earth, you show the love of Christ to somebody and they're believers, they're brothers and sisters, and then you go to be with them after your death. They gratefully receive you into the dwellings. They welcome you. We're so glad to see you. Thank you for all you did for me when I was on the earth. Enjoy the blessings that I enjoy myself. That we make friends by the wealth of unrighteousness. But this rich man could have repented of his love of money and blessed Lazarus on the earth. And Lazarus would have gladly welcomed him into the eternal dwellings. Imagine Lazarus would have, I'm sure, loved to be able to invite this rich man to to sit next to him at at the feast with Abraham. Introduce him and say, Abraham, this is my friend, Dives, the rich man who was merciful to me on the earth, and yet that's not the case. It doesn't happen because this rich man did not make friends with unrighteous mammon on the earth, but he kept it all to himself. 
He didn't repent when he had the opportunity. So Abraham gives these reasons why he can't give this mercy because you made your choice. You chose good things in that life. You now have bad things in this life. And there's no way for us to get to you to give you that mercy. So this rich man realizes he has no hope for himself, but maybe there's mercy for his family. Verse 27 The rich man says, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, that is, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Maybe too late for me, but it's not too late for my brothers. So please send Lazarus as a messenger to warn them. Abraham has to give him a second refusal. Verse 29, Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And we talked last time about the twofold description of the Old Testament, the, the law and the prophets. We saw in verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Here Jesus uses the term Moses and the prophets, that is the law of Moses, the first five books and the prophets. God's word, the Old Testament, we would call it. These brothers in this parable have God's word. They are not pagans who have no idea of what God is or who God is. They can listen to what has been revealed to them. They have God's word. They may be faithful synagogue goers. They hear the word week after week. They need to hear Moses and the prophets. That is the warning they need. They should know enough about God's will just from the scriptures to avoid your fate. But the rich man has a rebuttal. Verse 30, he says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He's convinced that the witness of a resurrected saint would be enough to convict them of their sin, and they would repent. Maybe God's word needs a little help. Somebody has to come back from the dead to to speak to them. He's sure of it. They will repent. I know they will. But we see in our last verse for today, the sufficiency of Scripture. Verse 31, But he said to him, that is, Abraham said to this man, this formerly rich man, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You might have seen, there was a sort of rash of these books a few years ago, people coming back from heaven. I was in heaven for a while. I was in a coma. I I went to heaven, saw Jesus, and came back. And Let me write a book about it. And there was a bunch of those kinds of things. I wish the publishers of those books had read this passage before they did that. Because we see, even if it were true, which I don't believe it was true, that they went to heaven. Um, that's not the kind of testimony that we need. We need the word, more of the word of God and less of that made-up stuff about supposed visits to heaven. The issue here, the reason why the rich man didn't repent, the reason why the brothers wouldn't repent without the word of God is not that they didn't have enough miracles. There wasn't some spectacular thing that happened to them. It's because they had wicked hearts. It's a heart issue, not a, not a matter of having enough miracles. And the the fact that they won't listen to God's word means that no miracle would be enough to convince them. And the Pharisees were the greatest evidence of this truth, weren't they? They're they're listening right now as Jesus speaks. We can look at the other Lazarus, the the actual Lazarus, you could say, the the non-fiction Lazarus. John 11, we won't go through the whole resurrection. We know what happened to him. We're looking at the aftermath. After... Lazarus was raised, verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. 
But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And therefore, the Pharisees finally admitted that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and repented at his feet, right? What does it say? Therefore, the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And skipping a little bit down to verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So far from the resurrection of Lazarus, bringing the Pharisees and other uh, leaders to repentance, they drove them to further hostility toward Christ, further apostasy, further away from salvation. Look at verse 10 of chapter 12. Not only did they want to kill Jesus, but they wanted to kill Lazarus. The people wanted to see Lazarus in verse 9. He's sort of a celebrity at the time. Hey, what was it like to be dead for four days? But, verse 10, the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Now, this does not contradict what I said. It doesn't mean that miracles never uh, lead people to faith in Christ. But if your heart is not right, a miracle will do no good. And also, sometimes miracles, instead of actually leading to true faith, may lead to a kind of false faith. You're so excited about the miracles themselves, but you don't really want to follow Christ. Of course, we also see the reaction to Jesus' resurrection. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the Pharisees and other leaders could not deny the resurrection, nor the miracles accompanying the spirits coming at Pentecost. So they just try to keep the apostles quiet, either through prison or other threats. So they were the, the prime examples of what it meant that, that if somebody will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Well, what should we learn from this story? We need to be careful with parables because we don't want to say too much or too little. To try, Some interpreters will try to find meaning in every little detail of a parable. Some would even try to find find out who these five brothers might be. Do the five brothers represent actual people or actual things? But there are a few things that I think we, we should not learn from this parable. One is that dead people, I don't think, actually talk to Abraham across this great gulf. You can imagine every time somebody died and thought they should be in heaven, it's going to be kind of bothersome to Abraham to keep a- answering them all the time. And also, I don't think that people in Hades, in this place of the unrighteous dead, can see across to heaven or paradise and actually speak to people across that chasm. Jesus used it as as a literary device. But we can learn a few things. First of all, we learn here the eternal blessing for those who have died in Christ, but also the eternal suffering for those who have died without Christ. We also learn from this parable the impossibility of a second chance after death. We also learn the power of Scripture. Second Timothy 3.15, Paul said to Timothy, From childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. It was the sacred writings that pointed Timothy to the, the truths about Christ. And one other lesson we, we just mentioned, that miracles are useless for those who have hard hearts. Another point we should 
I should make before I continue is that we should remember that poor people are not bound for eternal bliss just because they're poor. Lazarus did not go to heaven just because he was poor and miserable. And the rich man wasn't condemned to hell just because he was rich. Remember, who was Lazarus sitting next to in, in paradise in heaven? Abraham, right? He was a very wealthy man. And yet he was the father of our faith. And so your wealth or lack thereof doesn't uh, mark you for one place or the other. And we don't believe in salvation by works. If you give your money away that you're, you're going to go to heaven, or if you keep your money, you're going to go to hell. But we know that your actions reveal your heart. And so those who are uh, are unfaithful, Jesus says earlier in, in Luke 16, or who are selfish with their money, demonstrate that they don't have a heart that loves God or loves people. Let's end with a few applications for us. And first obvious one is that if you don't know Christ, repent now. You might say to yourself, I'll believe later. I want to enjoy life now. Maybe you're not as wealthy as these people. I don't see anybody wearing, well, maybe some purple here. I don't know. Um, But those who are wealthy or who want to be wealthy, who, who love riches, they want to enjoy things now. And later on, I'll believe in Christ when I'm kind of done with that. When I'm tired of of having fun, I'll believe in Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed for men once to die, and after this comes the judgment. None of us knows how long we have to live. We might not live through the day. And then who will enjoy what you have accumulated, as Jesus says in another parable? What will you do then when you've not made made treasure in heaven for yourself by believing in Christ? Or you might say, I'll believe if God just gives me more proof. But we also know that's not the case. You could get every proof imaginable. You could have a resurrected person in your midst, but if you don't have a heart that's right before God, you're not going to believe. Instead, as Jesus indicates here, you want to read God's word, hear God's word, and remember now what God has said, or you will spend eternity remembering the opportunities you've missed, and you'll regret them. That will be part of the pain of hell. Remembering all that you, all the opportunities you had, and yet you you gave them up. We can also say, obviously, don't trust in riches. Don't just focus on this life. In fact, don't envy the rich. You get Psalm seventy-three. This is a well-known psalm on this this matter, and the Pharisees should have known this. This whole talk about riches and so forth should not have surprised them at all. Because Asaph talks about this in Psalm 73. We don't have time for all of it, but look at verse 3. And Asaph is having kind of a crisis of faith, he might say. It says, He was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. Now, in this culture, if you had a fat body, that meant that you were very wealthy. So I'd be considered a very wealthy man in in Asaph's time. But that's because they have lots of food. People who didn't have... Much wealth didn't have enough food, so they would they would be be very thin. Verse twelve says, "Behold, these are the wicked; they are always at ease; they have increased in wealth." Seems like the the worst people are always the one who have the most money, the most stuff. But verse eighteen says, "Surely you, that is you, God, set them in slippery places; you cast them down to destruction." How they are destroyed in a moment! They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. That's like the man. The rich man in Luke 16, suddenly he, he, he 
went to close his eyes in death, and he is destroyed in a moment. He's swept away by sudden terrors. Verse 25. Who, and uh, Asaph finally realizes this. Whom have I in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. All the wealth of this world means nothing to Asaph if he has God. If, you, if I have you in heaven, that's enough. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Does that sound also like the name Lazarus? God has helped. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So Asaph knew. He learned this truth that somebody might be wealthy on this world, in this world, but if they are wicked, they will not go to paradise. But those who have uh, very little on this earth, if they have God, they have everything they need. One last lesson we can bring up now is, if you are suffering now, I don't think any of you are covered in sores like Lazarus was. We all have relative wealth and ease and, and, and material goods, but we all have our moments, our, our sufferings, our trials. If you are suffering now, look to heaven and the blessings there. Don't focus on your lack of blessings on the earth. Focus on your blessings in heaven. As Paul said in Romans eight eighteen, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Paul suffered more than most of us, or maybe all of us ever will, but his sufferings were very small compared to the glory that was to come. And let me just read one passage as we close. Second Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7. And Paul here is talking about the sufferings he has for Christ's sake. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who, are, who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may have caused the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction, now imagine what Paul was going through, he calls it momentary light affliction, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So imagine these scales, and he puts his suffering on one half, half of the scales. He puts the weight of glory, and the weight of glory far outweighs the, the light suffering that he, he had on this earth. Verse 18, We look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. All those things the rich man had on this earth, all the food, all the clothing, temporal. But the things which are not, which are not seen are eternal. And that's what Lazarus had. That's what we can have as well if we repent and follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are sobered by this passage, and we could say much more about uh, death and life and blessing and cursing and 
temporal and eternal things, but we thank you for this glimpse into what Jesus says to these people. And may it be a conviction to us to look at our lives and see what is it we value. And if someone here does not know Christ, may they repent now and know that they will be with Christ forever in blessing with him. We pray that you'd help us not to be so attached to this world, to what the world wants us to love and, and approve and and enjoy, but to focus on what you would have us love, approve, and enjoy. May we do this for Christ's sake, looking to the eternal things, remembering that the temporal things are just that. They're a mist which vanishes, but we want to hold on to the eternal things. May we do that for Christ's sake. Amen.